Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, what's up? If I if I am correct, you're on sabbatical this semester. Is that right? Don't hear you, Brian. You're muted. Steve, it still happened to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I I am out of the classroom and out of the practice on Zoom. Uh, clearly, uh, for the full year. Yeah. Um, well, I hope oh, full year. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. it's fantastic, I say. But as someone who had a semester off, you know, you always look forward to it. Then when you're in it, there's this unique feeling you have of what am I doing? Should I be doing something else, etc. So um, listen, I'm glad you're on sabbatical. I hope you're enjoying it. Today on the podcast, Brian and I are joined by two guests who it is my uh, pleasure and delight to introduce. Today, we're going to be talking about Theater Journal which is reaching or has reached is about to reach its its 75th year of operation its 75th birthday this milestone will be acknowledged indeed celebrated in a special issue that is in process nearly complete i believe and so to talk about that special edition and that milestone we are joined by Laura Edmondson of Dartmouth College and uh, incoming editor of Theatre Journal. Uh, Laura, nice to see you and welcome to the podcast. It's a delight to be here. I want to quickly also acknowledge that I'm speaking from the ancestral and unceded lands of the Abenaki people. Thank you very much. And we are also joined by Sean Metzger of UCLA and immediate past editor, soon to be past editor of Theatre Journal. Sean, it's great to see you. Last time I saw you was in Accra, in Ghana. I hope you've been well in the intervening months. Indeed, I just recently returned from those travels, actually. So it's nice to be back home, and it's nice to see you again. Thanks. So we're going to talk about Theater Journal. We've got three different topics that we have served up to talk about the journal and this milestone and what it says um, about the the state of the field, the past of the field, the the future of the field. Before we launch into all of this, I would like to say that I'm recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. I'd like to acknowledge this history, and I also thank the Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. As always, I would like to encourage our listeners to learn more about the territory where they live, and please also read the land acknowledgement page on our website, ontappod.com, to learn more. So, TJ at 75. Um, We all read some pieces from the 75th anniversary edition uh, edited by Laura Edmondson um, with uh, considerable input from Sean Metzger. In fact, maybe we can hear a little bit more about the editorial process as we go on. Um, But I thought I would just begin by asking Laura and Sean um, to tell us a bit about the composition of this issue. One of the distinguishing features of 
theater journal is that it regularly has special issues, right? And this, I suppose, in a certain sense, is one of those. Um, but I'm curious, I'm sure our listeners are curious how this issue um, differed from typical special issues, how it came about, and a little bit about what uh, readers can expect. Sure, I'll go ahead and get started. Um... So I will say I vividly remember, Sean, I don't know if you remember, but I remember the Zoom meeting that you and I had in which you floated this idea of doing the anniversary issue Um, because it was falling. It was going to be for December, and this is an issue. So the way that the Division of Labor works out is that I, as a co-editor, was responsible for the special issues in December, um, and Sean does the special issue for September. So we agree that given the uniqueness of this moment in Theater Journal's history, it would be exciting for us to collaborate on it. This is unusual. Usually the special issues is done by either the co-editor or the editor. Um, And we pretty quickly decided that we would um, ask for submissions of a shorter length than a usual article length because we thought that that would help encourage a more robust response from across the field. Writing a 9,000, 10,000 word essay requires just a certain amount of time and labor which seems to be in short supply across um, all of our institutions. And in order to even help ensure an even more robust response, we reached out to authors who appeared on our most cited list on our top hits list. We can talk more about what that was, in addition to having a general call. Um, And we are going to have 13 articles in the issue, in addition to Sean is writing an afterward. So you could say a total of 14, which is really exciting. And I'm looking forward to seeing the impact that this issue has. I would just offer a little bit of conceptual background for this particular project. And I want to thank Carla Noyce, who was the online editor at the time, who I asked whether or not she thought it was a good idea to have a kind of commemoration or a 75th anniversary issue of any kind, or if that seemed not appropriate. So she, and that's because I'm not terribly celebratory. (laughs) I'm known more for my critical modality, I think. So it was helpful to have someone else weigh in on this on this decision. And then once Carla said she thought it was a good idea, I approached Laura. And then we had to decide how, when the issue would appear. And Laura very generously said that she would take the lead on assembling everything, which was very helpful. <clears throat> I suppose, in general, anniversaries prompt me to think about genealogies of how we know what we know. And I think the anniversary was a nice time to reflect on that kind of a question. What are the dominant narratives in this case of field formation or of institutional history of the journal? And even though I am the editor, I'm surprisingly ignorant of the history of the journal going back 75 years, almost 75 years. We're actually the 75th issue, and I'm not quite, I don't quite understand, but we're not at 75 years. So I don't know how that worked. But nevertheless, there were that question and many other mysteries that emerged during our process for example, I tried to figure out why there was a transition from educational theater journal in the title to theater journal, and I don't have a great response for that. In any case, I've also been editing this, this collection with Roberta Mock called the Methwin Drama Handbook of Gender and Theater, and which Brian very generously reviewed, actually. I just saw the, thing, uh, the blurb on the back, so thank you. One of the, the 
outcomes of that project was we had to narrate the field of gender in relation to theater. And it was a very, it was a massive set of introductions. We did like four different introductions. So it ended up being, I think, 75 pages or more, maybe 100 pages of material that we actually drafted just for the introductory sections. And that made me think of what kinds of stories are we telling about a field and what are we not telling and how do those matter materially? So one of my favorite books in feminist theory is Clara Hemings' Why Stories Matter, The Political Grammar of Feminist Theory. And she has this narrative where she describes three narratives that, that construct fields, in, at least in feminism. They're progress, loss, and return. So I started to wonder what are the narratives that we have in our field in theater and performance studies and its various iterations. So that's how we got started. And then Laura and I had a lot of discussions about what it would look like. Um, very informative. I'm looking over the language in the general call for papers for the edition, and it does not say celebrate. It says commemorate. Celebration is something I brought into it in my introduction. Um, but on the podcast, we tend to keep try to keep things, I don't know, a little light. Um, but we're not against generative critiques. Um, though I am curious, and, and Brian, I know that you contributed one of the articles to this edition. Um, not that you need to answer to what extent celebration is part of your story. I could imagine that it might be. Um, but I wonder if as a contributor, you couldn't tell you, maybe you would tell your own sort of uh, narrative about um, how ideas came to percolate, how you uh, corresponded with uh, Sean and Laura about this. Well, I received the invitation or received the sort of the alert that this was happening and that they had, that my uh, name had come up in relation to being one of the articles that um, has come up in the, sort of the digital version of most uh, sort of referenced, which is the top hits, that there's a list of a, a, a certain number of, of articles that have been published in the journal that seem to a, a, a derive a certain measure of attention and searching. And many of those do come from the most last couple decades. And one of my articles from 2012 was um, on that list. It's my article uh, called Compiling West Side Stories, Histories, or something along those lines. And uh, the invitation arrived at a sort of a fortuitous moment in that I was sort of in this question of do I make the time, make the labor, make the effort space available to sort of do some ruminations on uh, the re uh, like what's happened since I published that article and the sort of the story of West Side Story. And I thought about that as an article project and I just didn't quite have the kind of the motivation for it to be a standalone piece, but the invitation to think of it to sort of do some of that thinking in dialogue with a prior work in relation to broader historiographical contexts in re relation to the field as it evolves and as the sort of the purview of the field continues to change. Um, that seemed to me to be generative and I was attracted by the relatively small word count promise, but of course my project kept growing, but, uh, but it's, um, but again, it was that it was that teaser. It was not on my docket of essays I was going to write this this in the last six months, but it was something that had been. It was an opportunity to um, say some things, to sort of make some make some corrections and revisions, and sort of do a little bit more of a field wide thinking in relation to my own co uh, very minor contributions within the field, like the particular ways in which I have tried to intervene, um, how those look and feel differently over the space of only 10 years, not 75, but thinking in that space of like, what was I thinking 10 years ago when I wrote about this? And what have I come to understand? And what, what, am I, what might I say? And indeed, the piece does try to end thinking forward. And so um, it is uh, a dialogue with the field, 
the pieces. And I think that of the we were we were um, thank you, Laura and Sean for giving us a preview of several of the pieces in, that are are slated. And I did uh, what I struck by when I read those articles, um, is they are in, they are I felt in really an affinity with being in dialogue <clears throat> with the field and asking questions of how do we put boundaries on this? What what events and what concepts do we put into play as we t as we tell whatever stories we're invested in telling? And that I felt very much was uh, I was in, I was excited by the invitation enough to sort of trust my gut and say yes pretty immediately, um, and then deal with the consequences as they befell me, in actually making good on that promise. <laughs> the the story is also illuminating because oh sorry I just wanted to say really quickly that it's it's illuminating and because I did you know we read four of the pieces that are going to be published in this and in many cases people are reflecting on the moment or the issues in which they wrote something previous and published something previously in TJ that, that made an impact. Um, are, are most of the uh, essays like that in some way? Do they, do they all start with a kind of earlier intervention, earlier contribution, and then develop from there? Or is there more of an assortment of approaches? I think it's an assortment from my view because different. we had different iterations of the CFB, that is there are three kind of sub areas that people could submit under. And I think some people, Brian had a cited article that we asked him to reflect on. Other people were previous editors, so they had a different kind of purview in terms of what the journal had done during their editorship. And others, I think Isaiah Wooden, for example, he had been the performance review editor. And so he started with an overview of the performance review section as a whole. And I think each of those contributions actually made us rethink like, oh, well, what, what will this be in the end? Because initially I thought, oh, well, maybe there'll be something on each. When Isaiah's came in, which was his essay came in quite early. And so it looked like, oh, maybe we'll have a performance review section. We'll have something on the essays. We'll have something on the online platform. We'll have, you know, and that actually did not materialize as much as I thought it might. And instead we got, I think Brian's piece I think of as a methodological inquiry into how we think about methods in the field and how they've changed over time. Uh, other people did very different kinds of projects. I don't know what Laura thinks about this. Well, I think I'm kind of going over my mind over the different essays, and I would say most of them, and actually I think that um, Anita Gonzalez's essay, which we all read for this podcast, is perhaps the exception in that most of them are grounded in some kind of either an autoethnographic sort of reflection on their own experience on working with the journal as an editor or as an author, um, or it is sparked by an essay, I'm thinking of Andrew Sofer's piece, that is sparked by an article that he feels like needed deserved more attention by Alexandra um, Wolska. Um, so most of them are sparked by something in the, oh, and I'm also thinking of uh, Ariel Nearson's piece, a quick note, the Ariel Nearson is our incoming co-editor um, and her co-author, they wrote a piece that was inspired by the work of, um, thank Susan you, Foster. Susan Foster's choreo choreographies of protest. And that kind of a reflection on the impact of that particular essay launched their own article. Um, so most of them start with the journal, either a specific article that had been published in the past or their own experiential um, work as an author, as an editor to spark their own reflection. But I will say, 
thinking about the genealogies of the discipline and how that's reflected in this issue. You know, we, in our call for papers, we said usually anniversary issues are some sort of reflection on the past, present, and future of the journal. And one of the things that's fascinating to me, and of course those of us who study temporality should not be surprised by this because linearity is a construct, but the way that the past and the present and the future all fold, fold into each other Right, and it's really quite difficult to disentangle it. I thought for a moment I could, we could organize the order of the essays by thinking about past, present, and future, and it didn't take me long to realize that that construct completely broke down because of the way that those ideas are so fused in each essay. I will say that the thing that really struck me about the four pieces that we looked at by um, Anita Gonzalez, by Bethany Hughes, by uh, Broderick Chow, and by um, Lauren Kruger, all have activating sites in certain ways. Like they sort of frame it as an activating site. And that in some ways I felt a lot of affinity with, even though my activating site was the fact of this essay, you know, was returning to the site of my essay, you know? And so this idea that there is this sort of space in which there's an activating encounter or site that then causes a kind of an elliptical looping of thinking about broadly about the questions of what stories haven't been told or what have been the evolving paradigms in which the same story has been retold or what have been, um, in some cases, we see uh, in some of the essays that we looked at, we see some, some I, I don't know if we would call it an audit or an inventory of, of how particular thematics or concerns or authorial presences have made themselves felt in the journal. So there's a kind of, there's kind of a, 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 a sort of a critical reflection on the archive of the, the journal as archive or journal as, as, a, as marking a field mm -hmm. um and then also uh but using <laughs> fascinatingly like i i just struck in the two essays we read today karaoke comes up so it's like this kind of activating site of embodied embodied practice as uh and presence and as what performance is and this and so for me it was about encountering my own words on the page but i felt there was a lot of affinity when it's taught when lauren kruger is talking about uh protests or traditions in, in the last 15 years in chicago and also the karaoke sites and then this one performer that uh, anita gonzalez talks about there is this sense of how the temporality of performance ends up uh, thinking backward and forward simultaneously. So there's a, there's a, uh, I was interested to see that. And then also just to note that I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that, um, that the Susan Foster piece um, inspired the reflection by Ariel and her co-author co because, because that is, I was struck by that was the piece, the only essay that appears both on the most cited and biggest hit and most hits list. It's interesting, uh, Brian. Of course, I, I noticed the the karaoke continuity as well between Bethany Hughes' piece and and Broderick Chow's. There's a kind of a clear picture, I think, of some core narratives or ideas or tensions in the field formation. Um, you know, we ended up with these four pieces, and it does seem as though there's a theme of uh, a desire for forward movement, a desire for progress, and the way that that uh, movement is uh, identified, I think still speaks to some, I don't know, some some tensions or ongoing animating problems in the field. Uh, Lauren Kruger talks for the first half of her piece extensively about capital, about economics and theater, and how during her 
uh, term as editor, she wanted to elevate those issues. Um, there is in Anita Gonz- uh, Gonzalez's piece, which is is called uh, "Seeking Critical Frameworks for Global Majority Theater," um, a desire to push the discipline in the journal into new directions by embracing publishing in languages other than English, in languages other than colonial languages, um, to embracing um, indigenous performance forms and aesthetics as new forms of epistemology that need to be grounded and centered as much or more than the epistemological frameworks we're used to. Um, Bethany Hughes' piece uh, meditates on... um, indigenous resurgence and redress. So it is similarly speaking, I think, to the field and doing a kind of inventory or an audit of the 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 past. I mean, she does a very a, a quick and very illuminating um, survey of the research about and from uh, indigenous authors and artists in TJ over its decades. And Broderick Chow, I found his piece really very striking and memorable because it's of the four that we read. I think it was, it had a high degree of candor about his personal feelings as a scholar of um, uh, Chinese and Filipino background in the UK and what it has meant to carve out his scholarly identity in that situation. So I think among those four, maybe we were they were selected because they do this they they represent a set of concerns that are still very much active i think in driving the field forward and incorporate that sense of what the field is trying to move away from <laughs> as much as what it wants to be would you say uh, Sean Laura that 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 these pieces are broadly representative of what of the sense that you got back from your 13 or 14 authors so i'd like to speak to what i see as a dynamic and then i'd love Sean to chime in. I also have a selfish goal here because I'm trying to think through my editorial comment and how to shape that. But I see, so what I see is it's almost like a, a pulsating uh, across the contributions to the anniversary issue is a shift between and among praise. I'm thinking of Isaiah Wooden. I mean, the title of his essay is In Praise of Performance Reviews. And there are essays that praise, like they they praise the contributions um, and the impactful contributions of Susan Foster's choreographies of protest, for example. But then it oscillates between the praise and that of desire, like really intense, fierce desire that I see articulated in the four essays that we all read for today. Um, And I was very struck, this is something, I'm sure this is gonna show up in my editorial comment, Roderick Chow, in his piece, he talks about desire as a form of knowledge. And I'm really, I, I find that really compelling and very generative for thinking about how can that desire, how does it speak to knowledges of what the discipline could and perhaps even should be. But I would, Sean, what do, what do you see in terms of what's happening in the anniversary essays? I think the curation of these four for this group was specific, right? So that we could talk, it has asks, each of them asks something of the field and of the journal. And I think that makes a good conversation. I feel that some of the other pieces, you know, they have, they strike different scholarly tones, each one of them. And some of them are more affirming in a way, or if I would, if I might put it differently, I think that they, the project is to review the impact that something has had that's been printed in the journal, which raises the question, because I think these these 
this collection of four also starts to think about what is the role of a print journal or a mostly print journal. You know, we do have an online section, and it's worth saying that we do also have our online section is going to be, I believe, six videos with different scholars in the field talking about the journal. So that will be kind of supplement to what we have in the print. But I think one question that came up for me probably very powerfully in Anita Gonzalez's essay is, what can the journal do? And we think about these questions quite a lot because she asked, for example, for simultaneous for translation of different pieces from whatever language into into what would be legible to TJ's primary audience, so assumably English. And we always think about like, well, how do we fund this kind of of work? And that's been a real challenge. The material infrastructure of the journal, I think, is something that we have thought about a lot. And the online platform enabled us to move into new spaces that we weren't able to do before. So we have a lot more engagement with artists and interviews and less less of the structured essay that dominates or predominates in the journal itself. At least now, I mean, I remember that David Roman, when he was editor, he also included a section that was kind of reflective pieces by senior scholars thinking about the field that is no longer part of the journal. But that said, right now, we have this other space, but it's very limited because it's, it's you know, the technology is not great, so we can't do a lot with it, or our, our imagination and desires do not match um, you know what the the material material infrastructure can do, and so that's been a challenge for us. And I think the incoming online editor Taryn Chun also has some some ideas about how to make something different happen, but it requires financial sort of input. And I think that's worth saying that what we've been able to do in the journal a lot has had to do with how we are able to fund it to the people, not just the editorial staff who are funded very minimally, but I mean, every artist that's been in the online section I have offered to pay and have paid. Um, so that, you know, that, that requires an input of money that AFA does not have. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. we were getting the money from other spaces for that kind of thing. So I think it's interesting, the question of form becomes very prevalent in, in all of these four essays about what is the journal, what can a print journal do, and what are its limitations? And that's what I would just tap into. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because as Laura was talking about desire, which I totally agree with, that there is something really surging and pulsating. And I think it's a different model of desire as a way of understanding knowledge uh, than we might have encountered in the 80s to sort of think ahead to our next section. The, the way it works is slightly in a different register, but I get it. And But also at the same time, it's about also the collision of desire and material infrastructure. The pieces that we looked at today very much each name structural questions of infrastructure, the limitations and the impingements of knowledge formation uh, and knowledge construction in Broderick Chow's piece, and for example, how material infrastructures sometimes guide and shape what knowledge looks like and what knowledge priorities look like and what resistance and, and discovery can look like in that context. And so I think that there is, um, but each of the four essays today, we're very much talking about, I felt very much talking about structural limitations that then there was a hunger and a pulsation, like how do we reach beyond this? But if it was not just financial structures, but it was yeah. ideological and knowledge producing structures that I would say include, you know, how do you pay people? How do you get them to commit their time and their energy, but also, you know, knowledge formation practices, which you can think of, uh, maybe it's a theoretical debate. You can think of people's attitudes and habits and language and ways of thinking as being inherited structural conditions that are difficult to um, move on from, right? The, if, if one can 
agree that decolonization is good, which I would agree. There's all sorts of questions about how you, in what ways you escape or outmaneuver or transform what we inherit through a world that is, you know, largely over centuries constructed through colonial exploitation. Um, so in the interest of time, we need to turn to the 80s. Brian has signaled this. We wanted to talk about what's in the issue. Um, we wanted to talk about the 1980s. And part of the reason for this is that um, it's not just any decade in the history of Theater Journal. So Theater Journal uh, changes its name from Educational Theater Journal to Theater Journal in 1979. Um, and then, listeners, if you find the call for the issue, which I'll put on our website, um, the editors have put on the 30 most cited articles that have appeared in the journal, the 20 articles that have received the most hits online, and a list of the special issues dating back to the earliest years. When you look at the 30 most cited TJ articles, you notice a pattern in the first 10, which is that almost everything in the top 10, actually, the I think all of the top eight most cited TJ articles are from the 80s. And beyond that, there's something about the years 1985 and 1986 <laughs> that stands out. Um, so what we decided to do was rather than trying to come up with some comprehensive idea or systematic exploration of the 80s or be entirely non-systematic, um, is that we each picked a TJ article that was published in the 1980s to read. And we tried to get several different types of essays. And we had one guiding question for this segment, which was, what was going on in the 1980s? And perhaps, you know, you could think of this in terms of zeitgeist, you could think of this in terms of generational uh, change, you could think of this in terms of the cultural politics of the United States in that moment or more broadly. Um, but I thought I would ask, and I'll start us off just by saying what essay we selected and to just give a very bare bones summary of it. So I picked Janelle Reinolt's essay, Beyond Brecht, Britain's New Feminist Drama. And Janelle Reinolt, basically in this very you know efficient, it's not super long, it's pretty direct and to the point, um, gives a summary of the tensions and intellectual problems of socialist feminism in Britain, especially uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, and then examines three different plays that come out of a socialist feminist tradition um, and the ways that they engage with the techniques of Bertolt Brecht. And so epic theater, jest, alienation. Um, she writes about uh, the play Strike While the Iron is Hot, which was uh, produced by the Red Ladder Theater. Um, another play Tanzi by Claire Luckham. And then Vinegar Tom by Carol Churchill. Basically argues that each of these plays are working with a, within a kind of Brechtian uh, technique tradition, but argues that um, there is something different that's happening with them because essentially each of these plays is showing uh, the way that sexist oppression transcends class and also the way that class um, oppression affects um, men and women differently at that um, at that time. So that's that one essay. I guess I can go next, but I also just want to clarify something. And I realize that this is very easily missed at the top of the list of 30 most cited TJ articles but it says it's ordered by year of publication. So it's actually because um, 
I, because I was working to cull data from both the Web of Science and Google Scholar, and sometimes that was contradictory, so that's how I ended up resolving it. So I did not rank it in terms of how most cited it was. So just want to mention for that. Me know this. But all of yeah. these are on right the most the thirty most cited theater journal articles. Um, so I will um, I'll chime in. I picked an article that was not on the list. I picked an article by Sandra Richards, Nigerian Independence on Stage, Responses from Second Generation Playwrights, and this appeared in a general issue, 1987, that was edited by Sue Ellen Case. And um, so I'll briefly ex just explain the article and then explain why I was drawn to, to bring it into this conversation. Uh, so in this article, as the title suggests, she's focusing on what she calls a second generation of Nigerian playwrights who are writing after and coping with the disillusionment of independence, of um, Nigeria's independence of 1960. And she focuses on three playwrights in particular. She looks at Zulu Sofola, she looks at Bodhi Sawande, and she finishes off with Femi Osofisan, um, whom she holds up as the most radical playwright. Incidentally, she Brecht comes into the conversation as well. She sees his plays as having the most capacity to empower audiences. And we see foreshadowings of what would become a very important book in 1996. Um, Ancient Songs Set Ablaze, the theater of Femi Osofisan. Um, I was interested in the article. I, I'm kind of thinking a lot about the impact of transnational feminism on the discipline, and I was interested in how she wrote, particularly about the work of, of Zulu Sofola, um, who, so at the time, Sofola was, relatively speaking, the female playwright of Nigeria. And I was interested in how Richards very skillfully and very thoughtfully navigates, right, the confluence. It's the play that she's writing about is called The Sweet Trap, 1979. And these upper class educated women, how they are navigating their um, class privilege and their education privilege, but also drawing upon tradition as a form of a resource. And even though Richards is ultimately critical of Sofola as being conservative and sort of depicting this pre-colonial past as utopic in which the genders achieved kind of harmony and balance. She does highlight some, the idea of tradition as a resource pushes back against the dominant Western feminism thought of the time, which saw African tradition as a source of oppression. And so I see in this article some it's prescient, right, in terms of thinking about what would come in terms of transnational feminism. And there's also some politics of citation that we could get into later if we have time. All right, thank you. And thank you for correcting me on the premise of why we're looking at the 1980s. I looked at that list for so long, and I was like, wow, the older articles really get more citations. I, I explained that to myself as, well, they've been around longer, so they've had more time to rack up citations. No, indeed. They were ordered that way. Um, but nonetheless, um, Sean, would you like to tell us about your article? Sure. I have a slightly long answer for this because I was thinking about how I know what I know. And part of that is my own educational formation. So I went to grad school, first at USC, and I worked with David a little bit and Doreen Kondo. But then David said, oh, you should go to this new program at Davis. 
And that's where I met Suellen Case, Janelle Renault, Bill Worthen, Karen Shimakawa, Susan Foster, because they were all there for a brief moment of time. And they, three of those people were editors of Theatre Journal. So I had a very strong sense of how the journal transitioned over time from the different voices that were in the department. And one narrative that struck me very strongly was when Sue Ellen had said, oh, we, Timothy Murray and I, when they were, co when they were co-editors, they tried to transition the journal to make it more theoretical and apparently were roundly critiqued for doing that. She talks about that in the introduction to her book um, collection, Performing Feminisms from 1990. And this particular piece, the classic drag, the Greek creation of female parts, was an early iteration of what became feminism in theater. I think that, that piece, along with her work on Hotsuite from before, she was changed as a Germanist, right, and then moved into feminist and lesbian theory. Those moves for her were about trying to bring the what had been theater studies into dialogue with more what sometimes called continental philosophy or what we call often theory. So they were trying to think about like how does all this theory that's coming out from Marxism, from feminism, from all of these different kinds of schools, deconstruction, how is it going to shift the discipline? And I think that's why the 80s became kind of a watershed because you do see a shift in tone where a lot of people like in her staging gender issue, that issue has all kinds of people talking about all kinds of French feminist theory that would not us not in the prior, prior decade have had anything to do with what people thought theater studies was, I think. And so there's a transition in this moment. And all of these people are also crossing between theater and performance studies as well. So I think that you see those tensions start to emerge. In this particular piece, which I find interesting because I was just looking at it for a different purpose, it's circulated not only in theater, but also in classics. And one of the reasons is something that she had said was what she felt was quite obvious, that men played female roles. And so there's an interesting kind of way she looks at the Oresteia and the Poetics as two classic texts that produce certain kinds of vision of women and femininity. And it is binarized, right? So it is male versus female. And I think that's also an interesting for this moment because I think the work I've been doing recently trans is so important and it's not even considered really in the in the early essay. Nevertheless, it opens up questions of positionality, of who's citing who, so these communities of citation that I think Laura had sort of gestured towards are all being brought up in this in this moment and how representational work does or does not correspond to lived experience. I think that was a, uh, some assumptions she was trying to deconstruct in the essay. So for me, that was very useful. And she, in the process of so doing this, she rehearses debates about you know, the Marxist critique of, of post-structuralism that I also kind of lived through, or at least the, the sort of aftermath of that. So I think that was, for me, why this, this particular essay was interest, interesting. And I just want to also note that you know, her work, part, part of it, what it reflects is also a moment of translation. So I think of that piece, and I think of uh, Nicole Leroux's um, Les Façons Tragiques du Tout Enfant, which is, you know, a piece of uh, Tragic Ways of Killing a Woman, which came out in France in the, at the same time in 1985, but wasn't translated for two years or later. But it gets at some of the same issues. It's kind of a, like, these are the way that Greek trage tragedy kills off its women over and over and over. And I think it's a, that's a, also, there was this moment of people rethinking disciplines to think about like, how does gender matter in these, in these moments? Um, and you see an explosion of this work in the late 80s and early 90s. So I think this, this piece by Case kind of 
launches a very large feminist critique of the canon and of the kinds of practices that enable certain texts to be taught over others in the academy. Of course, I went weird. Uh, that's just by, I went, I had to go off list because that's just my way. And I had to go to something that caught me because I was looking through, I was struck by the title of a special issue from 1982, um, Theaters of Insurgency. And I was like, 82, insurgency, interesting. Saw that the editor was James S. Moy. And I was like, interesting. James S. Moy was an editor of Theater Journal, like noted early uh, pioneer and like path breaking voice in Asian American theater studies in certain ways. And, uh, but, uh, you know, so I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then he, but what he narrates there is, something I thought was interesting, given the editorial practices we heard just summarized, is he describes special issues as a rarity in Theater Journal. Uh, is that this is something we don't do a lot. And now it's sort of a key part of the labor distribution practice there. So that's an interesting sort of meta moment. But he pointed to that this collection of essays, which again, described some of the similar processes of certain pieces arrived, certain pieces didn't, you know, but he said when he looked at them, they saw, they all described theaters that were um, forcing their way into being legible. And it sort of, and in this case, they, it included um, some black and feminist stories, but it was mostly stories of form and questions of theater sort of saying like theater needs to be different theater needs to be different theater needs to be more inclusive or differently engaged or engaging different audiences and so that's what he takes theater of insurgency from the piece i read by barnett hewitt um, which is called margaret fleming in chickering hall first little theater in america question mark and it's literally Barnard Hewitt, who I, even though I'd served on the Barnard Hewitt Prize Committee for Astor for three years, giving the, for the best book in theater and performance studies, didn't know much about Barnard Hewitt, never read a word of his that I was aware of, uh, or certainly not cited. And so I thought I should read Barnard Hewitt. And so I read, and I also, when I looked at it, I realized it's very much in keeping with the kind of work, some of the work I'm doing now with these weird little one-offs that didn't have an immediate impact because basically he describes a failed experiment for a nonprofit theater. And he says that this is this early experiment in doing non-commercial theater in the 1891, well before the little theater movement came on. They were, they were experimenting with practices like subscriptions, like uh, uh, donor funding, fundraising, uh, donated spaces, partnering with art museums and other organizations to create a space for non-commercial theater. And so it was an interesting, but it was very much written in a straightforward narrative. The citations are only citations of where did I get this quote, not about critical dialogue. And yet underneath the storytelling, there is this bigger question of what is the place of theater, in this case specifically theater, what is the place of theater in American culture and life, and how is it part of that? And so so there was something really interesting to me about the fact that the um, virtually all of the pieces, including one by Sandra Richards, in this essay, uh, in this special issue, are storytelling pieces, are pieces about, are telling stories of theater makers in the past. And sometimes the relatively recent past or the immediate recent past, like women in the in the plays of Amiri Baraka and the Richards essay, sometimes going back into the 1840s. But there was a register that was different in terms of citation, in terms of uh, whether or not theory was, as one advisor once described, you, are you using theory as an exoskeleton on the outside of what you're saying, or are you embedding it underneath the story you're telling, inside the, the musculature of the story you're telling? So, so there was a different relationship 
relationship to the guiding questions. And I do see that Barnard Hewitt, who wrote this piece, he was the first editor of the Educational Theater Journal. Uh, he was, uh, you know, sort of the first, he's attributed as having the first editorship of Educational Theater Journal. And this is a piece he wrote about five years after retirement. So it's a kind of an old guard. It's sort of an exemplar of the old guard. And one thing that strikes me is that what Moy is pointing to is we've got a lot of stories of theaters that have not, like in his little critical note at the beginning, he's saying there's a lot of theaters that whose stories have not been told, who need to these are theaters who have tried to be legible as theater. And so we see, and he's clearly mentioning sort of the insurgent movements of minority theaters or gay theaters or this kind of stuff. He's sort of gesturing obliquely out to that kind of thing. And it struck me a little bit when I was thinking about this in relation to the other pieces that we were talking about, how there is a conversation about how the 80s, how the theory turn ended up squeezing out sort of the uh, sort of the the taking seriously as literature, uh, Chicano literature, Chicano because it, like it was this space of are we talking primarily about uh, who's telling stories and what's going on? Or are we talking primarily about uh, European referent theory? And there's a critique that happens in that period in the 80s, in the early 90s, about when the theory turned turned when the, when the death of the author came, who were the people who were suddenly being uh, finally being recognized as authors? Yeah, so it's a striking, it's a striking example of the turn in the '80s in and of itself, in that it's a last gasp in some ways, of uh, of right as the pivot is about to turn. And I'm sure that Barnard Hewitt was among those who found the turn that the editorship of Sue Ellen Case to be of alarm and of concern, you know, because it does mark a real shift, a different priority of what look things look right before the turn. If I, I, I don't want to take up too much time uh, because I really want to hear more from our editors and and, and Brian that. That explication of why that essay is interesting is really fantastic. But in just a, a, a sort of gesture towards summary or big picture, it seems like there's several different impulses that are overlapping or happening at the same time, several different uh, projects uh, that scholars are self-conscious about, um, getting the field of theater, history, theater studies up to level with uh, being conversant in theory, right? Applying uh, theories coming from continental philosophy, psychoanalysis, Marxism, et cetera, to the archive that our field, which you could understand partly as being an offshoot of literary studies, at least at that time, right? Getting us up to speed on theory. Um, uh, developing, you know, you mentioned Bernard Hewitt and that that essay about America's first little theater. Um, Don Wilmoth was teaching at Brown when I was a graduate student when I started there. And I understood his career at that time to be part of a cohort of scholars that were looking at American theater history before Eugene O'Neill as this brand new, you know, field that needed to be expanded. They were looking at popular entertainment, et cetera. So there was in that way a different kind of agenda that meant to depart from the past or exceed the limits of the past. Um, there is, you know, in the Sandra Richards article, looking at global theater, right? I mean, not global per se, but looking at, at the theater from Africa um, and in the, you know, the connections with the African-American tradition, et cetera. Um, but I also think of this time partly because of the names that are on so many of these articles as feminism, not just theory or not, you know, feminism as one of an assortment of different critical approaches, but that there were so many powerhouse women and feminist scholars writing and getting a lot of, you know, having a lot of impact on the conversation. I really think of that as being one of the definitive features of the field in the, certainly in the 80s and 
Judith Butler's performative acts and gender constitution, um, which I think you can understand as a feminist intervention, but you can also understand as drawing some impulses and some ideas from performance theory in its, you know, in one of its earlier iterations um, is on that list as well. Um, I don't know, Sean, Laura, before we move on to trying to predict the future, (laughs) are there parting thoughts or things that we have glossed too quickly in our uh, jigsaw look at the 1980s? I kind of made a comment. I said, you know, there is something to think about the politics of citation here. And I, one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight Sandra Richards' article, part of it is to pay homage to Sandra Richards. That article by about Amiri Baraka, um, Brian, that you mentioned earlier that appeared in the Insurgencies issue that James Moy edited, I think... Okay, so there's like 300 issues of the journal, so I could be wrong. And if anyone listening to this podcast has information to correct me, please let me know. But I think that that was the first article published by a black female scholar in the history of the journal. So that was 1982. Um, But thinking, so that particular article did garner more citations. It didn't make it to the 30 most cited. Her article about Nigerian performance did not, I think it has 16 cited, 16 citations that I looked up. And she did, right? She hit the jackpot when she, let's see, it was in 2005, her article, What is to be Remembered, Tourism to Ghana's Slave Castle Dungeons. So that one, if I remember correctly, it's well over 100 citations. But the, I I do want to just comment on the, the lack of Global South representation that we see in the most cited articles. you know, there is Sandra's article, um, kind of, so this is leaping beyond the 1980s. There's Catherine Coles from 2007 on South Africa, Rustin Baruka's article um, on foreign Asia, foreign Shakespeare from 2004. But I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything about Latin America on this list. Um, so uh, that's one of the reasons I just wanted to bring out Sandra's article on Nigerian performance. She was doing really important work um, that was moving away from sort of the colonialist description documentary mode that we saw about non-Western forms of art that we saw in the 60s and the 70s, and she's moving to a more kind of um, engaged analytics. Um, But it's something that tends to get lost, right, because it didn't get a lot of citations. I think I would just echo a little bit of what Laura said, but I think the the big shift that happened post-80s was a move towards transnationalism and intersectionality. And those two terms really take over as a very strong critique of what had been, I think, a feminist tradition, but also, to be clear, a white, straight feminist tradition. And I think that's one of the reasons why Sue Ellen's work was influential, is because she was trying to introduce or, or disaggregate the feminist project and include lesbians in that kind of, or in a different iteration of, the, of, that, of that overall critical project. I think that the field as a whole, they, another work that she and Janelle did together, uh, I think performance of, performance of Power, I think they collect these essays from 1989, because in 1989 there was at Athen ASTR, both had these like explosive conferences where people were trying to define what the field was. And I think, people still think through that. I remember uh, David Savin, I heard give a talk once, and he was discussing that moment as being quite a watershed for the field. So I think 
it's important to remember that. I also just want to say that usually we narrate that as a progress narrative, right? That so we have moved from some a very specific kind of, of focus on certain kinds of of uh, revolution and meaning making and transformation. And I think actually the archive of the field, especially in the theater companies, there are many, many people of color and queer folks doing work that's just not recognized in the pages of the journal. So there, that's also a question, like what made it into those pages? And what is the history of the field that is provided by this particular optic, right? So that whoever was curating this journal is giving a certain story of the field, but it may not be the story that we want to tell or should tell because it's just one of many that we uh, could have constructed. And that's where I think Bethany's Bethany Hughes's piece in the forthcoming 75th is so striking in that it gives sort of the knowledge production question around terms of if you have certain like and, and I think Broderick Chow's piece does this too is like who who has the professional agency or opportunity to contribute you know, it, it opens up the structural questions. If you, you don't have a lot of folks uh, with PhDs who are Native American or Indigenous, then the, and then how many are in theater and performance studies? That's that's that sort of the the narrowing of who can be a contributive voice who's legible within the particular parameters of a journal that needs to for its own survival and for its own utility needs to have certain criteria of inclusion, which often are themselves exclusive. So there is, uh, I think it, it's really a striking uh, way to sort of think, when we think big about what the journals do say and what the contents of a journal says, like tracing the politics of citation and doing a little bit of this historical survey is is really a kind of a reminder of just how situated knowledge production is in the mechanics of of this uh, sort of the shift of like what are the priorities where do we put the resources whose voices do we do we highlight um where do we think we're going next and then if panel if you want to refine that in terms of thinking about the 75 next 75 yeah, we wanted to look at what the where the field is going. Um, uh, Laura, I think this is a prompt that you brought up in our pre-episode planning. Of course, seventy-five years as 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 dynamic as the situation in the world and academia and the field is. Seventy-five is perhaps you know too far to <laughs> to even predict. But where where do we think it will? Can go? we start with where we would like it? Kind of start aspirational. Maybe that's a, a bit. You know what? Maybe that's a better yeah. question because I don't think we can do both. Um, but when a, an aspiration or a, a hope or a desire uh, ahead of Aster's Hope Conference, where do we hope the field will go? Can I just say something really specific to kick off the conversation? I would, with all you know, I totally agree with Sean that the shift toward intersectionality and transnationalism has been invigorating for the field. But I. I would like to see, maybe not in 75 years, can we make it shorter than that, that the top most cited TJ articles will be deeply transnational, deeply intersectional, um, and also speak to, well, we haven't brought this up yet, but um, Jennifer Parker Starbuck has an article in the issue where she speaks about the need to shift toward a theatrical biome, right, that includes humans and human animals and non-human animals alike. So that's also what I'm thinking of when I think of transnational intersectionality, um, really a, a theatrical biome that contains the richness of the life that we're living, because I don't see that richness reflected right now in our top most cited articles. I think for me, 
this is going to sound a little essentialist, so, so I will qualify by saying, you know, I am thinking about how we, people submit work. And when I go to conferences, who comes up to me and, and how we procure the material that goes into the journal. And I think we've had a problem from certain populations that we would like to see more represented and certain topics in the, in the journal. So I would just mark that I think I'm the second queer of color to hold the editorial position. I think the fourth person of color. We've never had a woman of color at the head of the journal. And I think that's important for many different reasons in this historical moment, but also because I think that one of the things that you see coming up again and again is what kinds of epistemological, but not just epistemological, ontological kinds of, of worldviews are being represented in this journal. And I'm not sure, again, that the journal is necessarily the place for everything to be represented, but insofar as we try, I think that we, I would like us to see us to be more diverse in terms of our contributors, in terms of the topics that we cover. I, it's just interesting, in my editorial tenure, I'm not it just happens that I think the things I, I published the most on was Polish theater, because that's what we got through that general submission process, and that's what made it through the editorial reviews. And that has, there are many, many reasons for that, including like who reviews on, in a timely manner. And, you know, but it's just interesting that when I took this job, I literally said, I want to make the journal more transnational in its, in its focus. I want to make it more intersectional. And some of that, I feel like, well, you know, you try and you fail. That's what, failure can be productive. And I, you know, that's why the online component became more important for me, because it was a way to curate things where the stakes were lower, where I could bring in different kinds of voices, where people from outside the field could start to enter into conversation with us. Those That venue has really helped create a different kind of dialogue in the journal, I think. But I think the overall, this something we have to change how we do what we do in order to proliferate more uh, voices that count. If I could jump in quickly, Sean, I think your the work that you have done, I, I think we're actually, Ariel and I will start to see some of the payoff. Like I'm thinking about the submissions that we're getting in now, and I think it's, I just, I just want to acknowledge all that work that you've done and that it was not for naught. But sorry, I didn't mean to jump the queue. Sorry about that. But it does underscore the sort of the peculiar way that academic time works and how, you know, it exceeds one's duration in a in a service role and how one's implication, how the implications of one's one's uh, work might be far down the road in certain ways. Um, but I mean, I think that I, I was struck too by the the areas I go, keep going back to Broderick Chow and uh, Bethany Hughes's pieces because I felt that they were really anchored in what in an indigenous register is talked of talking about relationship, talking about uh, like relationality, like this relationship, which I think also connects to some of what I see as the urgencies of the moment around ecological considerations and dealing like these interventions in um, sort of the hazard of the journal itself is, and the academy and the theater are all prestige economies. And I think the intervention sometimes is uh, to really think about the relational dynamic, like to be in relationship in, an, in, in a register of uh, like what indigenous studies would call to be in relationship with people, to understand what the relationships are. A prestige economy doesn't prioritize that. Prestige, prestige economy only values 
relationships in very specific transactional ways. And I also think that that aligns very uh, generatively with um, questions of the biome, questions of the uh, of ecological responsibility. And and so I think that those are the current those seem to be the surging issues that we look back on and realize, oh, there were no no things about that for a while, but then all of a sudden there was a lot and they became important and became engaged. Um, and I, I'm hoping that there'll be more ways to think um, uh, dynamically about sites of interrogative value, of places that are worth interrogating in conversation uh, with the conversation that theaters uh, scholars are having. And that's what I felt really modeled in the pieces by Kruger and Gonzalez and Hughes and Chow. They all did. They played, they, they layered um, what are we asking where in really complex ways that seem very grounded in, um, in relationship. Can I say one more thing? Because I just, you made me think of something, Brian, and that was something I forgot to mention about Case's article, but it's also about the past. I think, you know, the interrogation, a rigorous interrogation of the past really matters in a field where most undergraduates exposure to that field is through a theater history sequence that starts yeah. off in a very particular <clears throat> Western oriented way. And I think once that becomes broken apart more and we get more scholars working in those fields. And Theater Journal has not been great about producing a lot of material in earlier periods that help with this project for various reasons. Um, but I think that will go a long way to creating a different kind of conversation. Um, I'll keep this quick. It's a good provocation, something I've been thinking about uh, for the last couple of weeks. I think if it's an aspiration, a hope for the field, I would love in future decades to find that scholars in our field are more comfortable uh, disagreeing with each other in public and in print uh, to sort of build, it's not that it's non-existent, but to build and resuscitate a sense that part of what we're supposed to do as professional intellectuals dedicated to these archives is to um, argue with each other, to try to push each other and expose the limitations and critiques and uh, you know problems with each other's arguments without letting that so quickly get into feelings of... Um, being attacked or aggrieved or, or um, I don't know, uh, embarrassed. I think there's it's too much to get into to try to analyze in the context of a little comment like this, but there are conditions that I think lead people to feel very tentative about making certain types of arguments. And so we get a lot of mutual congratulations and praise and a lot of inward critique and disagreement that we don't share. And I think we there are actually completely rational reasons for why that's true. It's a small field. Um, people's arguments tend to be politically grounded and grounded from a place of their own life experience. And so to disagree with that can feel like it's too personal. But I do think that for the field to continue to thrive and grow um, we need to be willing to disagree with each other straight up and have the arguments and, and not worry too much about the consequences of that. So that's that's my aspiration. If I if I can tag in, I'm a, I'm so conflict averse by disposition <laughs> that it's like I'm like I don't know. If I, I don't think do it's that, I don't think it's your fault. Right? With, <laughs> yeah, but but it's also the uh, the uh, what I will say is one of the most generative opportunities that I was able to have as a result of contributing to the 75th issue was in uh, disagreeing with myself and having a space to re revisit and see where I don't think I said that right and let me say it again in a different way and that kind of uh, forward-thinking humility I think was 
was really a powerful space for me to explore uh, in, in, a, in a space where I knew other people would see it rather than just in the dark night of the soul or sort of being embarrassed when I read my work on, on its own. I'm just saying, I'm going to try to see how I can be accountable in a way that isn't too self-indulgent, but also that is also about thinking about that as a practice of what we need when we're going to ask for more dissent. We also need to be able to sort of revisit our own assumptions to sort of see where I might sure, need absolutely. to Absolutely. But I want someone else to disagree with you in public and for you to have to <laughs> say, no, you're wrong. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Okay. Well, like, like, we'll see how <laughs> that goes, panel. We'll see maybe how we can, goes. Maybe, we can, stage, maybe we can stage something. So now I'm going to wait for, and I'm going to wait for panel to sort of like prank me with something like I, this, just to set I, I wouldn't know. do it. I wouldn't do it. Listen, um, we were, go, we're going a bit long, but we still need uh, to do our, our concluding segment, our draft. Um, uh, listeners to the podcast know these are our uh, percolating thoughts, our, our, our works in progress, or maybe not heading towards anything completed or, or something good we read or saw. Um, I'm going to go first very briefly. Uh, coming up next week as we record this. So next week, Saturday, October 21st, there's a symposium at the University of Toronto called Interpolations One. This is hosted by University of Toronto's BMO Lab, of which uh, Douglas Eco is an assistant director. They are talking about AI and performance, and we have friends and co-hosts of the podcast involved, Sarah Beijung, um, uh, Sydney Skybetter, Elizabeth Hunter, Miriam Felton-Dansky, uh, Jacob Gallagher-Ross, Annie Dorson is giving an address. It looks awesome 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 i emailed douglas um and he said that they i think there may be uh portions of this that will be videotaped and and the public can check it out but that to me looks awesome i'm really i'm wishing i could be there i'm hoping i could um see it um so uh, maybe we can talk uh on a future recording about it but that's what i've got um uh, brian why don't you share your draft please well uh again just to sort of uh, it's a refrain I often hit. I often end up talking, Sean and Laura, I don't know if you know, but I often end up talking about what I've been watching on television and uh, particularly what streaming services I have feelings about. And I will say that the biggest discovery of my last month or so has been falling in love with Tubi, T-U-B-I. Uh, and it's, there's nothing, it's one of those ones that's the new, new wave in streaming technologies where it's ad supported. So you have random ad interruptions, but the, uh, but the thing I love about it is it feels like the Gen Xer in me is being sung to when I rummage through the listings because it feels like I'm going through one of those wackadoo independent video stores that defined my early adulthood. Because you'll see these documentaries and these weird off-brand like TV movies, like just this weird assortment of stuff in addition to all the other things. And there's just something so rewarding. And also I will say for those, for listeners of the podcast, I have encountered documentaries that I thought were lost to the winds around uh, sort of music, around culture making, around movies, around theater, around performance, uh, gay and lesbian documentaries that I thought only ever went to the festival circuit and nowhere else are there for free. So there's a lot to discover once you just find your niches and it just, it, it's simultaneous simultaneously thrilling as a forward thinking of like, what am I going to watch next? But it also just makes me think of the hours I wasted wandering around the aisles of video stores. And that just so for some reason makes it me It sounds great. I'll check out um, Tubi TV. Tubi TV. Thank you. Um, uh, Sean. I'm waiting for my leave so I can explore Tubi. <laughs> Thank you very much for that suggestion. Um, I, this is a little bit selfish, but it's really for, for the authors in this collection. I edited this 
book called The Methuen Drama Handbook of Gender and Theatre with Roberta Mark. It's 550 pages, and it's got a bunch of people from who are sort of next to the discipline, but not necessarily in the discipline, including uh, folks from classics, from Japanese studies, um, uh, from gender studies. So I'm hoping that folks have a chance to look at it. It's going to be incredibly expensive, not by my desire, but so I think it will be a library only kind of purchase, or if you want to see part of it, you can just email me. But I think I really hope that it, I learned so much from doing that project over <clears throat> seven to eight years. So I, I really would like to share that with, with everyone. And I think the contributors did a fabulous job and there's, there's all kinds of different voices in there um, that I think will make us rethink the relationship of theater and gender in, in very useful ways. That's fantastic. And as just to double dip quickly, as somebody who had the privilege of reading those 500 pages to blurb it, it is an extraordinary work. I totally, totally. I mean, it's a field change. Fantastic. Can't wait to see that. Uh, and Laura. I anticipate many theater journal citations of that <laughs> book in the future. Um, so mine is also, it's both selfish and aspirational. Um, it's aspirational because it's a book that I had pre-ordered and it just arrived this past week, and I've just read the introduction, but the book is called Care, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. It's by Pramila Nadison, who is a historian at Barnard, and the reason why this is a selfish draft is because I've been thinking, I have some projects going on thinking about care and my distrust of care as a discourse. Um, and I have a call for papers out. The special issue for December 2024 of Theater Journal is called Care, Care Work, and Performance. And this book is, as you can tell from the title, um, which is, of course, a reference to Lenin, um, it's an excoriation of care as a discourse that um, have sugarcoats and whitewashes exploitation and also looks at the care economy as imbricated with racial capitalism and how the pain of marginalized and minoritized people is translated into profit. Um, so it helps me kind of think through, I, I, a long time ago I wrote a piece um, for TDR in which I wrote about hope as a kind of academic sugarcoating, like the way we kind of sprinkle in hope into our academic narratives as a way to kind of make more palatable the social injustices we're writing about. And I. I kind of feel like care is starting to take that place, but at the same time, I also believe strongly that care and justice must be co-articulated. Um, so this book is helping me to unpack some of those ideas, and if anyone is interested in thinking alongside me and unpacking these ideas, please email me if you have an idea for an article for the special issue. Sounds great. That sounds like a really Great topic for a, for a special issue. Thank you, Laura. Um, Sean Metzger, Laura Edmondson, I can't thank you enough for spending your time um, and, and, and sharing your expertise and experience uh, with TJ, with our audience. Um, again, thank you, Brian. Thank you, uh, as always, listeners. We appreciate you streaming and downloading, and we will catch you on the next recording. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com, email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can also find us on Blue Sky Social at ontappodcast.